The investigation continues into a tragic SUV crash in Imperial County. Obviously, that vehicle is not meant for that many people. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego stays put in the most restrictive purple COVID tier. Now that you have a growingly significant percentage of the population vaccinated, perhaps the tier system ought to take that into account somehow. San Diego County offers $100 million in rental assistance, and San Diego's Latino Film Festival goes virtual for the second time. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. Despite falling rates of new COVID cases and hospitalizations, San Diego did not make it into the less restrictive red tier when county status was updated Tuesday. Our case rate was still too high, the number of tests too low, to allow lifting restrictions on indoor dining and other purple tier safety measures. But health officials are now hinting that the guidelines for the state's COVID tier system could soon change because of increasing vaccinations. County officials say about 10% of San Diegans have already been fully vaccinated, even though the problem of low vaccine availability remains. Joining me is Paul Sisson, health reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And Paul, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. How far off were we from getting from purple to red? As you may recall, this is this arcane measure of uh, cases per 100,000 residents. Uh, we were at uh, 10 cases per 100,000, and we need to be at no more than seven. So we're just uh, 3.8 cases too high. What other counties did make it into the red? Uh, We saw many of our neighbors to the far north, including uh, Napa and San Francisco, uh, as well as San Luis Obispo. What's interesting in San Luis Obispo is they actually had more cases per 100,000 than than we did, but they got a bigger bonus uh, and saw their their raw rate reduced because they've been doing more testing per 100,000 residents than we have. And do we have a chance of getting into that less restrictive red tier next week? Uh, No, we don't actually. And I did verify this uh, by email with the California Department of Public Health yesterday, just to refresh my memory from the fall. Uh, You need to have a case rate at seven or under for two consecutive weeks before they will move you a tier Uh, So we need to do it two weeks in a row. So even if we do it next week, we'll need to still do it for one more. 
Now, is the tier system going to change because people, more people are getting vaccinated? There have been a lot of hints recently from folks who should be in the know uh, locally. Uh, Nathan Fletcher, chair of our local board of supervisors, has hinted that the governor is up to something, that they are going to be tweaking this system, uh, as I recall. And and, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm just paraphrasing here, but I think his sense was, you know, as we see larger and larger percentages of our overall population getting vaccinated, that does influence the transmissibility of this virus in the community. And, and so, you know, this entire tier apparatus was designed before we had a vaccine. So it would stand to, to reason. It would seem logical that now that you have a growingly significant percentage of the population vaccinated, Perhaps the tier system ought to take that into account somehow. Nobody's really sure exactly how. One of the complaints that we hear from county officials is that they don't have enough vaccine. They're not getting the supply. And Blue Shield now has a new role in vaccine supply. So how does that change things? It's early days. Uh, They seem to be kind of easing into this in the month of March and say that they're going to take, quote, full responsibility for vaccine distribution by the end of the month. Right now, it seems like they're kind of feeling their way in terms of uh, deciding how much vaccine should go to each county and each health provider. I've, I've read their contract with the state. It says they, they have some sort of algorithm to make these decisions, but that algorithm is not included in the contract. So I'm, I'm not quite clear. I'm not sure who is quite clear at this point exactly how they're going to dice this up, but it's, it seems like it may be somewhat different from what we've experienced uh, up to this point. Uh, For example, we know that the University of California system has received its own separate allocations as what's called a multi-state entity. uh, And it's unclear whether or not that type of special allocation will continue. Uh, That special allocation, from what I understand, has helped UCSD do so many vaccinations at its um, Petco Park Superstation over the last couple months. There seems to be some real optimism surrounding the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I'm wondering why that is. And I'm also wondering, when will San Diego be getting its first Johnson & Johnson shipment? We're all wondering that. We uh, we all asked uh, the county at their uh, weekly press conference last Wednesday. Uh, and, and Dr. Wooten said she just wasn't sure. At that point, uh, it was it was up for approval uh, by the FDA over the weekend. It got that approval. Uh, we haven't really seen any any firm estimates on when those doses uh, should be flooding in. But yes, everybody's uh, very excited. Uh, you know, the the, the key with this uh, vaccine is that it only requires one dose. So, you know, it should uh, create less of a logistical problem, uh, you know, like we're seeing with the, the two uh, existing uh, vaccines from, from Pfizer and Moderna, which require you to come back either 21 or 28 days later. And, and now we're seeing situations where people's uh, second doses are getting delayed due to this uh, drop in supply. Uh, so, so a single dose vaccine, I think uh, all of the uh, public health departments are, uh, you know, just licking their chops for that one because it's just uh, less of a logistical rigmarole. And if indeed the supply chain does improve, does that automatically mean it's going to be easier to get an appointment for a vaccination? Yeah, I think it should. Uh, You know, what they've been doing is they've been uh, deciding how many appointments to make based on the amount of vaccine they they have on hand or or can assume that it will be uh, arriving soon. One one really big hope with, uh, with the blue shield situation is that you will have some forecasting uh, that goes beyond just a few days. Uh, You know, last week, the the county uh, folks said, geez, we don't know 
more than just a few days uh, in advance how many doses we're going to get. Uh, you know, there in the Blue Shield contract, it seems like they're committing to uh, letting letting folks know at least a week ahead of time how many uh, vaccines they can expect to receive, and that should should help them be a little more uh, forward looking about the number of appointments that they can actually put into the system and make available. Okay, that sounds good. I I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thank you. Thank you. Many people across San Diego County are experiencing financial hardships due to the pandemic. Now there's money available to help with rent and utilities through the county's emergency rental assistance program. The need is great, especially in hard-hit communities. Joining me today is Nancy Maldonado, CEO of the Chicano Federation, which is helping to administer the program. Nancy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Over $100 million is available to renters across San Diego County. Who is eligible for this assistance? So as far as I know, it's anyone that owes um, back rent or um, maybe has outstanding utility bills. Um, They're eligible for for this assistance, and it comes in different amounts. And obviously, um, the median income, the area median income plays, plays a role in who is eligible to receive these funds. And landlords can also apply. Are, are you seeing that happen at all? Yes, this is this is a huge um, advantage for landlords that that have tenants who owe back rent. Um, if the if the landlord is willing to forgive some of that rent, the renters qualify for up to eighty percent of the backlog in rent. So it's it's a great program that that can really help renters and landlords during this time. In terms of eligibility, households must earn no more than 80% of the area median income to qualify. For example, a single person household can earn up to $64,700 and a four person household can earn up to $92,400 and must be either at risk of homelessness or facing housing instability. How much money could an individual or, or family receive? So I think it, it depends on how much is owed, right? So it's up to 80% of the backlog in rent. So depending on how much rent that particular renter owes, um, I think it varies. Just how great is the need for rental assistance in the communities that you serve? There's there's a huge need for rental assistance. I, I can share with you that already our phone um, has been ringing off the hook with, with people wanting assistance in filling out this application. Um, we also have people coming to our office um, wanting assistance to to help them fill out the application. Um, and, you know, the, the county one is just one of the um, the rental assistance programs. There's also one coming through the city, one through Chula Vista. So we're getting calls for those as well, even though they're not yet, uh, they're not yet open and accepting applications. So given that, um, you know, we can tell that there's, there's a great need for, for rental and utility assistance. So this is a great thing that the county of San Diego is doing. And paint the picture for me. What are some of the stories that the Chicano Federation is hearing from people about how COVID has affected their ability to make ends meet? Gosh, you know, the, the, there's so many different stories. I think one of the things that we're hearing a lot um, is that um, families have had to move in with relatives or with friends and that there's multiple people, multiple families living in one household now because they haven't been able to pay their rent or their mortgage. 
Um, so for, for the families that we serve, we're seeing that a lot or, and they've had to move out of the area to maybe they don't have friends or relatives that live close by and now they're having to commute to work. So this has had, it, it, you know, this has had an impact at multiple levels, but in terms of housing, um, you know, definitely what we're seeing is a lot of families and, and relatives and friends living together, unfortunately. And how is the Chicano Federation exactly helping families receive the assistance available? So what we do is we help families fill out the application. Um, for a lot of uh, people, navigating the application can be a little bit confusing, particularly if they don't speak English. Um, the other part that is sometimes hard to navigate is that the landlords do have to participate um, for this one if they want to get the, the 80%. Um, so navigating that is sometimes challenging for people um, and getting landlords to to participate they don't always want to participate um, so sometimes we have to pay we play kind of the the intermediary to um, to facilitate you know getting that conversation going and, and asking the landlords to to participate in this program um, and that's really the role that we're playing is is more just assistance um, in helping families uh, complete the application. And, you know, the housing situation has always been fragile for so many people, um, but much work has to be done to ensure that this ongoing health crisis doesn't turn into a housing crisis as well. How would you describe the current state of housing within the community? So San Diego County has had an affordable housing crisis for, for a long time. And one of the things that we, we've been tracking is the cost of, of homes and, and how the the increased rate, I mean, over the past year, the median income of a home has risen almost 10%. So I think that combined with the fact that, that people are not just struggling to pay their rent, they're also having a hard time paying their mortgage. And as of right now, there hasn't been any mortgage assistance that has come through. So that's a lot of what we're getting to is, is questions about do people, is there support for mortgage assistance? And for the for the families and the people who can't pay their mortgage. So I think that that is something that we need to start thinking about if we don't want to see um, an even bigger housing crisis here in the county. And uh, with with a lack of mortgage assistance, uh, that can certainly elevate things. Also, these, you know, rental assistance programs, they do provide a much needed stimulus for families in need. But with no end to COVID in sight, what do you think needs to be done to protect families from housing insecurity for the remainder of this crisis? Well, I think that the programs like this obviously are helpful. I think in addition to that, a lot of families are just in need of flexible financial assistance. You know, there's other bills that haven't been accounted for, like medical bills or, you know, families come to us with a variety of different needs. And when these programs are very specific to rent and utilities, while that's helpful, there's also there's also other needs that families have. And, and I think that flexible financial assistance for families would be really helpful during this time um, in helping families navigate this pandemic and really address the needs that they have that we might not be seeing. I've been speaking with Nancy Maldonado, CEO of the Chicano Federation. Nancy, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch. Like 
chocolate blood to savor with Dracula. Or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. There are new developments in a deadly Imperial County crash that killed 13 people after a tractor trailer hit an SUV carrying 25 people. Now authorities say the SUV entered the U.S. through a hole that had been cut into the border fence between Mexico and California. And there's much more to that story. Joining us is KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman with the latest. Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. What more can you tell us about the new developments revealed by the Border Patrol this morning? Yeah, some new developments are being reported by the Associated Press, basically saying that that SUV also entered with another SUV, a Chevy, um, and they entered about 30 miles uh, from the spot of that crash, um, that it was through a small area in the border fence, um, and that this is basically being investigated as a human smuggling operation right now. Was anyone taken into custody? We don't know that at this time, you know, but we do know that this is a very fluid situation. And do we know the status of the survivors who were involved in that crash in the SUV? Right. So we know some of those survivors that suffered some of the worst injuries, some of the most traumatic injuries, they were airlifted to San Diego. So we know that four of those patients were taken to UC San Diego Medical Center in Hillcrest. And we actually got an update from them um, basically saying that that accident near El Centro, all are in serious condition. They're all staying there, uh, receiving care for a variety of traumatic injuries um, at the level one trauma center. And two of those patients were also taken to Scripps Mercy Hospital, not far away from there. And we do know that the CHP basically said that people in this accident suffered a variety of injuries from, you know, very severe to people who they described as, quote unquote, walking wounded. What do investigators know specifically about the cause of that crash with the semi? You know, there's not a whole lot known right now. Um, obviously, you know, there may not be any witnesses to that crash besides some of these survivors that were there. Um, w- one thing to note, it was not a T-bone crash. So that truck uh, collided with the driver's side. Um, you know, it didn't send the truck spinning. It looks like it made contact with the driver's side door and the passenger side door. Um, we, we do know that there, are, there appears to be some skid marks. So there might may have been some braking involved there. Uh, we do know that federal authorities, the NTSB, is investigating this along with the CHP. Um, so we'll see. We, we do know that that SUV was driving along a road that had a stop sign. So they're trying to see maybe if that stop sign was blown, uh, but it's going to take, you know, a lot of forensic investigations to try and figure that out. And tell us about the area this crash happened in. What, is it a remote area? Yeah, it, it's it's in a very small town. And, and one, one thing to note on that as well, the driver uh, of that SUV, who is a Mexican national, uh, he did uh, pass away in this accident. So that's something that they're not going to be able to question that driver uh, about what happened. But yes, it happened uh, in an area near El Centro uh, that, that is in a very small town. Hmm. Many workers commute daily from Mexico to work on nearby farms in that area, especially during this time of the year. What can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, you know, it, it's the height of the seasonal harvest in that area. And, you know, initially yesterday when this happened, it happened early in the morning, you know, first reported around, you know, six in the morning. And uh, CHP was not ruling out that this that these could have been, you know, workers that were on their way to work um, because this is a town that's very close to the border, about 10, 11 miles away. Um, and there are people there who travel the border regularly to go to work. Um, now, obviously, as we're learning some new information here from the Border Patrol, from some federal authorities, um, appears to be shifting their focus uh, to this being a potentially, you know, migrant smuggling operation. How were 25 people able to fit inside of this SUV? Yeah, it was a question that authorities were asked quite a bit. Um, you know, we're, we're finding out that um, apparently inside that SUV, that Ford Expedition, that there were just the front and passenger seats, that the rear seats had been removed. Um, but yeah, you know, as you mentioned, I think nine people is what it's rated to carry. Um, so 25 people definitely uh, over the load there. And when a vehicle is is that full with that many people inside, what effect does it have on on how it operates? Yeah, obviously, you know, you can imagine when a vehicle is that overloaded that it might might affect its ability to stop very quickly. Uh, one thing to note too, as well, that semi truck trailer, and to kind of paint a visual for you, um, it's you know, imagine two trailers. It's a, a gravel trailer, sort of, you know, with the uh, triangle shape, two triangle shaped trailer. Uh, trailers and that is not carrying any gravel. So I'm not sure if that impacted that truck's ability to stop or not. Where does the investigation go from here? Right now, the investigation, you know, goes to that forensic investigation, you know, where the CHP and now uh, federal authorities are going to try to piece together, you know, sort of what happened. Obviously, you know, we have the truck driver um, who was taken to the hospital, but apparently he's doing okay. So they have him as a witness. We do know that they were able to question some of the people inside the vehicle. But yesterday, the CHP had said that they weren't able to provide any preliminary information about why that accident may have happened. So, you know, using those tire marks uh, to try to piece together what sort of happens uh, and where we move forward. Keep in mind too, that driver of the semi-truck of the CHP saying yesterday, you know, um, that nothing's off the table, so to speak, if they have to go down the road and maybe file criminal charges with the district attorney, should they find that he may have been at fault for this accident. All right. Something I know you will continue to cover. I have been speaking with KPBS reporter, Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jade. Staying in Imperial County, a story from our partners at iNewsSource. Farm workers there have long been plagued by poor housing options, low wages, and barriers to health care. And COVID-19 has only made those conditions worse. Now local leaders say more help is needed for the workers who serve as the backbone of the county's $4.5 billion agriculture industry. iNewsSource reporter Jennifer Bowman has the details. It's a sunny weekday afternoon in downtown Calexico, and the streets are bustling. The border city serves as a hub for thousands of farm workers who arrive before the sun rises to head to the fields. COVID-19 has ravaged Imperial County and caused outbreaks in the agriculture industry statewide. But even during a pandemic, Kesifredo Figueroa is reporting for work. I have faith in God that nothing will happen. I don't have fear. Figueroa began working on farms three decades ago when he was in his early 20s. He lives in Mexicali and crosses the border every day he works. Though Imperial County is the cheapest place to live in California, 
Figueroa says he can't afford to live in the U.S. We make little money in the fields here to cover rent. Rent here comes out to $800 to $1,000. The agriculture industry dominates Imperial's economy. But low wages and barriers to health care have long been problems for its farm workers. The pandemic has made things worse. A new camp for farm workers popped up along the border in Calexico earlier this year. On one side of the row of tents is an apartment complex, the other the metal brown barrier that separates the two cities. Some of those at the camp are homeless farm workers, and others are seeking a place to stay instead of making the hours-long commute across the border. Jose Mundaca is one of them. The 44-year-old lived in Calexico but said his house burned down in December. He said he must stay in the U.S. to maintain his residency, but his low pay has made the search for a new place difficult. The apartments are very expensive. They're 1200 but my work doesn't provide for that much. Farm workers have crossed the border and entered Calexico for decades. But there's no designated place for them to gather as they wait in the middle of the night. Some hang out at a donut shop or a fast food restaurant before getting on buses. And it's backpack city. Alex Cardenas is a board member at Vaux Neighborhood Medical Clinic. The organization is helping farm workers with isolation housing during the pandemic. Cardenas says even before COVID-19, the workers weren't always welcome downtown. Don't use the restroom unless you're a paying customer. You know, you can only be in the restroom for five minutes, no bathing. So imagine you walk into this restaurant and there's all this signature and signage basically not welcoming you. When the pandemic shut down businesses, it closed public restrooms too. Farm workers are now left with even fewer options than before. We need an emergency plan now. Raul Urena is a first-term Calexico City Council member. He says more farm workers are sleeping on the streets during COVID-19. He's now pushing the city to seek grants for permanent housing. You look at the quote-unquote unemployed or regular homeless population, how many of them are disenfranchised farm workers? Governor Gavin Newsom last week signed legislation that gives $24 million in extra funding to help farm workers. The money will go towards services for those isolating because of COVID-19 and financial assistance. Joining me is iNewsource investigative reporter Jennifer Bowen. And Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Housing for the Harvest is an emergency program for farm workers who've contracted COVID-19. Remind us what it provides. Sure. So the state launched Housing for the Harvest last summer um, in response to the pandemic and the outbreaks that we were seeing in the agriculture industry. And it operates pretty similarly to other programs that people might be familiar with, um, like San Diego County, for example, where hotel rooms are being provided for quarantine or isolation housing. Um, It's like that. This program is specifically meant for farm workers, um, and it's offered in the state's biggest agricultural areas like Imperial County. So farm workers often live in multi-generational households. And because of that, or or the size of their house or, or any other reason, staying home safely may be an issue. And and this program is supposed to help. So the state covers the cost of the hotel room. um, And so far, it hasn't spent a lot on this program. Uh, Just a few months ago, CalMatters reported just $75,000 had been spent. But very few farm workers have actually used the housing for the harvest rooms, despite lots of farm workers getting COVID. Why is that? 
Yeah. So the reason that the cost of the program is so low is because it is so underused. Um, only 131 rooms have been booked under the program statewide. Um, one county, it hasn't been used at all. And in Imperial County, just four reservations have been made. And that's a shockingly low number when you think of the 800,000 farm workers California has. Um, and there's estimates that 46,000 of them have contracted COVID-19. Um, and there are multiple reasons the program isn't being used as much. Um, one is that there are administrative issues. Um, only hotel rooms are covered. So the cost of actually implementing the program, staff and, and things like that, the local agencies have to cover that. Um, so no transportation, no meals, no wheel wellness checks, those things aren't covered. Um, and then there's also concerns that farm workers have. Um, they've had concerns about the information they're providing in order to obtain a hotel room, fears that it might lead to deportation, and just the, the fear of being alone and away from family while you battle COVID-19. So um, seven months after the program has launched, the state is realizing this, and Governor Gavin Newsom recently signed uh, a legislative package that gives $24 million in extra funding for the program, and that will go toward those wraparound services um, and offer financial assistance to farm workers, and farm workers who are um, instead isolating at home are now eligible for that program. Now, housing in general has been a long-standing issue for the county's farm workers in Imperial County. So what are local officials doing to try to solve the problem? Farm workers in Imperial County have suffered from low wages for a very long time. And, and it's partly because of that, that many of them live in Mexicali because their money stretches further there. Um, and now there are two council members in the city of Calexico who were elected in November and they say it's time to provide a more permanent solution. So they're seeking grant funding to build permanent housing, um, which we're seeing other cities in Imperial County doing the same as they try to find a solution for farm workers. Now, meanwhile, Imperial County is asking the state for more COVID vaccines. And that, that's what we're hearing from every county, really. But what is Imperial County's particular issue? It's certainly not a unique request that Imperial County has, uh, but their argument to Newsom is that they're not seeing his pledge that the vaccines will be distributed equitably, um, becoming a reality. Imperial County has been one of the hardest hit regions in the state by COVID-19. Um, it has a predominantly Hispanic and Latino population and Latinos and Hispanics have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Um, so in short, county leaders are saying they've been absolutely battered by the pandemic and yet other regions that haven't been hit as hard are getting more doses. Now, in answering an email from iNewsource, the state says it is increasing its vaccine allocation to Imperial County. Tell us about that. So Newsom's office pointed out that the state increased the Imperial County's vaccine allocations by 91% last week. And they said that was due to changes in the state's methodology um, that better reflects Imperial's large population of agricultural workers. Um, and it's al also offered an additional vaccination site to the county. And um, as we see farm workers continuing to work and to be impacted by the pandemic, we're told that the state is working with local partners to provide culturally competent information to farm workers and their families to try to better reach them. And has Imperial County come up with a strategy to boost vaccinations among farm workers? 
Yeah, as soon as they were able to get some doses and as soon as farm workers were made eligible for the vaccine, um, they jumped right in. So just last week, Imperial County had a vaccination clinic for um, 1,000 appointments for farm workers and the county got help from a local nonprofit to book those appointments and it was fully booked by the time the clinic was held. Um, and the county has mentioned future vaccination clinics um, that will be similar to how they've handled uh, flu, flu shot clinics in the past. So mobile clinics, holding events in downtown Calexico in the middle of the night, you know, as farm workers wait to start their long day, going out to the fields to meet them where they are. Um, you know, farm workers are a huge part of the county's economy and its, and its community. So county officials tell us they're going to be borrowing from those past practices to help them. I've been speaking with iNewsource investigative reporter Jennifer Bowman. Jennifer, thank you very much. Thank you. The San Diego Zoo Global is changing its name to San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance in an effort to reflect the organization's new mission. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says the 105-year-old organization is taking a more holistic approach to conservation. Two African elephants, Swazi and Nisa, eagerly reach out their trunks, searching for a treat from leadkeeper Lauren Coates. Their skin's super thick and strong, but it's, it's really wrinkly. It's kind of like a tire, like how it has some give to it, even though you can tell it's super strong um, and it's super wrinkly. And they have hair all over their body. You can see it here on the trunk, but um, it's really thick like wires. Coates reaches into a bucket full of cut-up sweet potatoes, cucumbers, and food pellets. We can call them over at different times throughout the day, um, and they should respond to their names. The keeper says the elephants get treats as part of their training. And if they choose to come over, they get reinforcement um, for leaving, you know, what they were doing and coming over. And then we just will walk away when we're done, and they get to go enjoy all their treats again. Coates says the elephants have choice and control over what they do in the yard. The treats are a way to reinforce positive behaviors. In the beginning, it's just getting them to know their name, just to come to us when they're called. And then we can move into more complicated behaviors like blood collections, milk collections. The two moms in this nine elephant herd have been part of a more than year-long study of elephant milk. Keepers regularly take samples from lactating moms and analyze the milk's composition. Researchers are trying to measure how elephant milk changes over time so they can help orphan elephants in Kenya. Workers at the Riteti Elephant Sanctuary can make age-appropriate formulas that can be the difference between life and death for elephant calves. That connection makes the work in San Diego even more important for both researchers and keepers like Coates. The work that they do every day is helping animals and plants in the wild. Nadine Lamberski is the organization's chief conservation officer. She says the new San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance name reflects a holistic approach to conservation. It is about wildlife. It's also about people. And it's also about, again, the ecosystems that we share. And, and it's that, that balance of nature that becomes so important in our work. She says the concept hit home recently when the coronavirus infected the safari park's gorilla troop. It was the first ever case of human to gorilla transmission. Several members of the troop were infected and the silverback got monoclonal antibody therapy. All have recovered, but Lamberski says the situation offered a lesson. 
This is an infection that originated from animals and then went into people and unfortunately people transmitted it back to animals. But it goes more, it goes beyond just that. We had a meeting just the other day with, with our uh, colleagues that work with great apes in the wild and we talked about how do we protect wild gorillas. What do we, um, what needs to happen to make sure that, that they don't that they don't suffer consequences because of the exposure to this virus. In fact, COVID-19 helped push the zoo to change the way it does business around the world. San Diego Zoo CEO and President Paul Barabalt says the zoo was making incremental movement in that direction anyway, but the pandemic accelerated the change. Through this past year, we've all seen how our own human health is tied to the health of wildlife, is tied to the global health of the planet. And so in so many ways, COVID was the catalyst that said, we have to do this now. Baribalt says the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance brings research skills to the table, but he says that's not enough for a complete solution, which engages communities, governments, and other wildlife organizations outside of San Diego. We, if for us to have a greater impact in conservation, we needed to use this moment to energize everybody, all of our partners, all of our donors, all of our supporters here in San Diego to be a part of this solution. Baribald says the new focus doesn't mean the two parks will be ignored. He says those parks must thrive for the organization to stay financially healthy. Baribald says the animals, like the African elephants at the safari park, help connect local visitors to the organization's research work. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Last month, the 27th annual Latino Film Festival had to cancel its in-person event on its opening day. That was following Governor Gavin Newsom's ban on large public gatherings. It was the first San Diego festival to have to cancel because of COVID-19. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the festival's founder and executive director, Ethan Von Tilo, about the past year and the upcoming 28th Latino Film Festival. Ethan, a year ago, the San Diego Latino Film Festival was the first San Diego film festival that had to cancel their event. And you guys had to cancel it like on your opening night. (laughs) Now it's a year later and you guys are completely online for this year's event. What does it feel like? Yeah, I, I seem to remember you and I having our one of our first Zoom meetings ever, interviews ever. We were, we were both learning how to use Zoom about a year ago. Um, yeah, and it was just right after we uh, had to uh, postpone the film festival. You know, for me, as the founder of the San Diego Latino Film Festival, uh, one of my commitments to the community since day one has been the idea of you never not hold the event. You always hold the event, the screening uh, I don't think, I don't know if people understand that in me, but in terms of my passion and my focus, you know, you always find that print, even if it's not the exact print, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to screen it in Blu-ray or digital. You're going to f- screen that movie no matter what. 
So for me to actually have to not hold a festival for the first time in 27 years uh, was devastating. It was just emotionally draining, uh, physically draining. Our staff as well, you know, just kind of went through it. Everyone kind of, there was this grieving process, right? Which I think is the grieving process that everyone's been going through this past year. Uh, it's been a challenging year. Uh, 500,000 people have lost their lives due to COVID here in the U.S., uh, but just you know the loss of jobs, the uh, entertainment industry, artists, filmmakers, uh, film festivals trying to survive is you know it's just been incredibly difficult. So we had to postpone the film festival, um, but thankfully the support of the community has has been there um, this past year. Uh, we had an individual donor campaign where people could donate and support our organization. Uh, our staff has just been incredible, uh, just pivoted quickly to a virtual format. So we've uh, immediately uh, started screening movies uh, uh, digitally, virtually with our digital gym cinema and then our educational program. Uh, we Im immediately were able to do our Saturday team producers class uh, virtually. Uh, but yeah, but not without its difficulties and challenges like all of us. You have been able to expand a little bit in terms of what the festival is able to do because you're doing virtual screenings, but you are also taking advantage of our San Diego drive-in. Yeah, lucky us. You know, we have beautiful weather here in San Diego and we have these wonderful drive-in um, experiences that already exist. And so our opening night, March 11th, is going to be at the South Bay drive-in. We're so excited to you know see the movies on the big screen. Uh, we're actually taking over two screens at the at the drive-in, so you'll have a chance to see the classic movie Zoot Suit. Uh, that's the seven o'clock screening. It's the 40th anniversary of Zoot Suit, and then after that, the nine o'clock screening is a Frontera Filmmakers Shorts program. So it's supporting local filmmakers, uh, and then on the next screening, we're screening La Odisea de los Giles, which stars Ricardo Darín, it's an Argentine film, and uh, Ricardo Darín has been a, a fan favorite of our film festival. And then after that, we're screening Frontera Filmmakers documentaries, short documentaries. Uh, so yeah, I just imagine if you're a local filmmaker and to go out to the drive-in and see your movie on the big screen, I'm really excited about that. To me, it's, that's fantastic. And it goes back to the, you know, why we created the organization in the beginning, right? Is to support local filmmakers, to support young Latino filmmakers in particular. And so to see their movies on the big screen is gonna be uh, fantastic. And then on March 20th, doing something a little different, we're gonna kind of create our own pop-up uh, drive-in experience at Westfield Mission Valley Mall on Saturday, March 20th. So we're gonna put a huge 50-foot screen uh, it's the parking lot just kind of west of the Target there in the parking lot. Uh, we'll have live entertainment. Kimba Light's going to play some salsa before bringing a little bit of our Sonido Latino um, experience to the festival. And then, yeah, we're going to screen another Argentine film, El Retiro, which is a nice uh, family-friendly movie, sweet, heartwarming film that everyone should enjoy. So, yeah, opening night and then kind of closing weekend, we'll both be driving experiences and everything else will be virtual. You mentioned that you're going to have some live music. Your event in the past has always been about a lot of in-person things, whether it's food and drink and music and discussions after the films. So how has that been like trying to recreate that in a mostly virtual environment? 
You know, I think that's been one of the toughest uh, toughest things for us to do. Uh, you know, it's that in-person environment and celebration of culture and cinema, food, art, music. You know, that, that's been made, that made the festival so interesting. And, and you're running from one auditorium to the next to try to get into the film on time. And then you see an actor and people are taking photos on the red carpet. So, you know, that experience we do miss. And we miss seeing, of course, our attendees in person and talking about the films and opening up the catalog and stuff. But that said, as you know, we postponed the last year's festival and we had it in uh, September. And one of the exciting things that did happen during the festival was these virtual live streams, you know, and the, the, the ability to connect with filmmakers from all over the world. You know, they were in Europe and then South America, Mexico. It's just incredible to get them on one screen and have that dialogue. And so I do believe uh, one positive thing this past year is learning how to have these uh, live streams, these, this communication, the dialogues, because, you know, again, it's not the same thing, but you still feel that sense of connection with the filmmakers, which I think they they so badly need it too. They want to see their work out there and they want to discuss their films. So I think we had close to 70 hours of uh, live stream Q&As this past festival. And so that's going to continue too. So after the movies, I encourage everyone, it's nightly, there's going to be two to three Q&As every, every night. So please enjoy those Q&As, get onto YouTube, Facebook, and, and check out the Q&As with the filmmakers. It's pretty fascinating. And what have been the financial challenges of all this? So how has it been trying to adapt to this kind of new environment where selling in-person tickets is not really the main source of your income. Yeah, so our organization is built upon earned income and, and it was something that we were, you know, really good at over the years, whether it's registration fees for our youth media and tech camps or ticket sales from our film festival, ticket sales from the digital gym, earned income from our video production services, everything except for the video production services that just just went down completely. Um, you know, we've lost over close to $500,000 uh, in our annual budget this past year, which is just incredible that we're still standing and talking to you right now and that we're going to have a film festival. But thanks to uh, federal support, uh, PPP loans, city support, state support, we're still able to provide the programming. Uh, and, and, we, and we, we're very strong. I feel we're very confident. We're very strong and the organization is going to do fine. But it's definitely this period without earned income. It's, it's been pretty dramatic for the organization. It has been devastating, but thankfully, uh, individual support, foundation support, we've been allowed to kind of, you know, keep going, uh, keep our core staff. Uh, and then, you know, we're excited to, uh, you know, it, uh, in the fall of 2021, we'll move into a new space. And hopefully by then, everyone will have their vaccinations and feel more comfortable and we'll be able to do some in-person events as well. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about this year's San Diego Latino Film Festival. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Ethan Van Tilo. The 28th annual San Diego Latino Film Festival starts March 11th. Next week, Beth will speak with the festival programmer about the film selections. <laughs> 